Today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Jason, whose routine heart check revealed something that would change the course of his life. I used to feel pretty invincible. I'm a you know big, tall guy, very healthy. You feel a bit, am I broken? Will I ever get back to being robust and strong and looking well? Not from a negative or vain point of view, but you look you look drawn. And I think you feel sorry for yourself and, and destabilised. And, you know, as soon as your body is not working as you're used to, as you take it for granted, it's a big event to process. From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Molly Tresiden. On the Ticket Tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. On this episode, Jason talks me through how he prepared for his open heart surgery, how he managed difficult conversations, and what he now has in common with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Jason, could we start um, with you telling me a bit about what life looked like just before you discovered that you had a heart condition? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you, you know, by way of introduction, I'm, uh, you know, 51 years old, uh, married, three teenage children, and I think I probably felt pretty invincible um, and having a heart condition or needing a heart operation was definitely not on the radar so I was 25 years or have been 25 years in London working on trading floors for some of the world's biggest banks so just imagine sort of a football pitch of noisy people um, a, a table with sort of six computer screens it's pretty much what you see on the films and my life was 24-hour global markets, um, long hours. I was sitting at my desk most days at six in the morning. Fair amount of stress, a lack of sleep, some tough lifestyle choices, uh, international travel, definitely hard work. I think everybody's working hard now, but it was hard work, um, maybe perhaps less glamorous. Um, and then the counterbalance to that, my downtime was trying to be uh, a, a father that was present, a husband that was present and, you know, trying to fit in as well, triathlons, tennis or cycling or gym. And just that sort of uh, familiar balance of life, which I'm sure a lot of people experience, but it, it certainly wasn't on the radar for me at the time. Mm. And so um, what was the process of discovering that something was wrong with your heart? So it, uh, it it's an interesting process. I, you have to have these... Um, medicals before or when moving between companies or regular health checkups when you get to a certain level within a, within a bank um, and it was a routine one which identified I'd been born with a bicuspid so if those that don't know it's it's two, it's two a two-part valve rather than a three-part valve so I was born with a, a condition but they found they heard a, a murmur and then it sort of developed into, right, well, you know, our advice is that you need to have this regularly checked. It's not a grave matter of concern right now, but it could be um, certainly as you get older. But I was going right into the busiest time probably of my career. Now, whether or not it was subconscious or an unconscious decision, but I sort of parked it to one side. I felt that I'll get round to that. I didn't deliberately try and avoid the advice I was given of having regular annual, annual checkups, but I certainly didn't do that. I was got sort of based on when time permits, I'll get back to it. And then we ran into COVID a couple of years ago. And one of the things, having a bit more time on my hand, one of the things I thought was, right, okay, uh, I'll, I'll go back and have, it, have that uh, checked. 
but I didn't want to feel broken or, or damaged. I didn't want to get some bad news that I knew I'd find pretty de destabilizing, and I did. And, and I'm more fundamental. I'm just a, you know, I think a rubbish bloke. I, I was worried about hospitals, x-rays, blood tests, needles. You know, I don't really like the dentist. So to be talking to somebody about your heart and the need for heart surgery at a date in the future was something which perhaps in hindsight I was trying to avoid. But uh, in getting close to the operation, and my surgeon was amazing. Everybody I, I bumped into during this process has been either angels or their, their professionalism is, is absolutely humbling. My cardiologist, you know, described what he was going to do and describes it as a routine operation, something which perhaps he's doing twice a week. There is some reassurance in that, that it's become routine. 25 years ago, I think, you know, it would have been the subject of tomorrow's world and the front newspaper about sort of opening somebody's chest up and, you know, taking their heart out and operating on it. So it, it's good to listen to people who you're going to have to relinquish control of that journey too at some stage. But um, yeah, it was, it, it was certainly the momentum built pretty quickly from knowing something might be up to knowing, right, okay, no, we do need to take action. Mm, yeah. So when you went back during the pandemic, you went from, yeah, you've got this bicuspid valve, but now we're going to need to do open heart surgery to replace yeah. it. Yeah, I did. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm very mindful that people have had very uh, harrowing and you know tricky times during um, the pandemic. Uh, you know, be it the you know the the health staff or the people on the other side. But uh, yeah, my my part in that was um, St Bart's, which I think was the only uh, cardiac-based hospital that was open in the UK, and they were spilling over into some of the private hospitals in in, in London. They were only treating emergency cases. The it's well documented the stress that was being put up upon any intensive care staff um, to try and take care of the, the the COVID and the pandemic. So what that meant for me was that something which uh, my cardiologist, I was urgent, but I hadn't fallen over having a cardiac event. Um, sort of, can we do it in October? October was moved to November to December. Um, so that, that vacuum that you sort of operate in was something which I had to deal with mentally, but uh, we got through and uh, my operation was at the end of Feb, last year so interestingly i've got my year's checkup uh this thursday with my cardiologist where i'm going to have to have a echocardiogram um and fingers crossed they're going to establish that all the sort of plumbing has been put back in place and it's working well it feels like it is mm. uh but hopefully i'll get my sort of year um sign off later this week so yeah but that that time uh so february of last year um it was a it was a period of waiting and maybe with hindsight, it was good because I had more time to process a significant event, whereas obviously some people don't. They're just thrust straight into it, though. If people listening to this, I, I guess have a we'll have a link to a cardiac event, either themselves or people that they know or their children or their parents. So that that's relevant because I mentioned that because, you know, I had a bit of a period of a window to try and structure how I approached what was a big event, you know, for me, but for our family as well. Mm. And so how did you start to wrap your head around that, you know, from going from being someone who was very fit and healthy to needing this major surgery? How do you even begin to start processing that? It's a good question. I was really scared, to be honest with you. 
and you don't know how to approach it but i think but you you can't you can't hide you can't be in denial but you have to face up to a situation so there's no no hiding from it i think you have to try and be stoic and i just said right okay well in any other situation in life um which you can't avoid you you have to try and my approach would be to try and uh put process around it i mean the british heart foundation website brilliant you start reading and reading perhaps the which i'm hoping you know one i would like to help you guys with but it's there's a bias towards an older generation on the website just because the demographic of heart disease generally tends to fall that way so then you're led down other avenues of investigation you know if you start using the web it's amazing but as we all know it can be a bit of a double-edged sword you can read as much harrowing or clickbait in in medical websites as you can in any other subject matter so but but for me it was about um the 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 practical side of trying to understand what was going on asking questions reading books reading about sports people that had you know had cardiac events and uh, were bouncing back um so I mentioned I'm not a sports person but just younger people that I might be find it easier to associate with and then also just from a practical point of view you know what what does it mean to have open heart surgery you know what does that look like I wasn't very good at looking at the pictures but I could I, I read up about it and you know what does it mean to be on blood thinning drugs for the rest of your life and and then so there's a there's a there's a factual side of the process which I tried to break down and then also just trying to be more stoic or aware of the fact that when you're tired or feel threatened or destabilized it's scary um you you feel you feel under attack I, I felt i felt sorry for myself um but in recognizing that that's the first key and then accept it's normal to feel like that and why me and what about the children and am i going to be broken and you know am i going to be changed as a person but the more you recognize that sort of negativity bias that goes through my head or people's heads you know you often people can make create stories which never are quite as bad as they actually become in actuality but uh, it, it, there was a lot of sort of mental and practical parts to that process mm, it's really interesting that you say about the bias towards an older demographic did going through this experience and doing all the research that you did change the way that you per- perceived heart disease? A hundred percent. So it, it, it's so interesting. The, the more you read, you know, this whole science of longevity, if you think about life expectancy is just galloping upward, people are definitely living for longer, which is great. So what happens is, is that, you know, age is the thing that gets us. And if it's not heart disease or cancer or dementia or respiratory diseases, that it's it's going to become more prevalent uh, for all of us as we all live longer. But I, I had had a perception, to answer your question, that perhaps heart disease was more about people who are obese or smoke or who never exercise or have you know, certainly very, I was in the category of sort of stressful lifestyle and cortisol and adrenaline running through your body every day on a trading floor. And, and you know, working crazy, uh, you know, transatlantic flights and, and, and jet lag and lack of sleep, all of which can be contributory factors. But I thought heart disease was, 
you know, for the older generation or for the generation that weren't mindful of how they were looking after their bodies. And mm -hmm. I think more recently, maybe through the work the British Heart Foundation is doing, I see that, you know, the adverts on the, you know, the, the, the radio, I think the TV advertising campaign recently has been, you know, quite powerful, uh, certainly in 3D heart printing and, and featuring children, that this is something which touches a much wider demographic than I think we realise. Mm, yeah. So you talked about how you approach this for yourself and doing all of the research and working out what having open heart surgery meant. Yeah. How did you approach talking about it with friends and family? Because, you know, this is something that would obviously affect the people around you as well. Yeah, it's a good question. And it it varied. Um, so I'm fortunate to have a, uh, a brilliant wife. It's not, there were times going into doctors' consultations that I thought I'm quite good at processing information and assimilating what the response should be. And I, I literally would walk out saying, no, I think I've got that and I understood it. And I've missed 60% of a conversation. So uh, how did we talk? My wife and I talked a lot. And again, I think, you know, about being stoic or being adult in these situations, it's very easy to bottle that energy up and it sits inside you like a stone and you and you know it'll really get you down or you can have tricky conversations so we would go out and walk the dog and you know the Tuesday morning conversation was going to be okay do we know what all the uh, you know passwords are on accounts do we uh, I don't want to be buried I'd prefer to be cremated how you know do the wills need updating and then you'll be in tears walking around you know with the people assume that something was a foot as we'd walk around with the dog and I remember having a conversation about um I think it's called do not resuscitate mm. and you don't expect to have to have these conversations but you 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 do and often the trickiest conversations are those which will bear greater fruit you, you get through it you process it by the afternoon you both feel a bit better that you've squared away some tricky admin that you didn't want to have to talk about so you know my wife I've got to say was it was uh, she's a bit emotional for me talking about it but uh, she was um she was probably more visibly emotional she'd cry a lot more mm -hmm. talking to our so I mentioned I've got three teenage children uh we were right in the thick of it was as I mentioned it was that COVID it was it was Christmas COVID uh, our eldest was deciding whether or not to go off to university. We were doing a lot of adult processing to one side, but I think children are intuitive and they kind of know what's going on or something's up with a parental unit. So we shared with them after Christmas Day. So we thought we'd get past that. Um, so there were some tears. Uh, but again, I think in being able to present a, uh, a process that we understood and a plan that we were going to stick to, um, the children were very resilient, but it's just open, it was it was probably honest sharing. So being authentic, um, sharing, I, I I kind of didn't want one interesting thing. Well, it was I didn't want, um, and I still don't. I, it's definitely part of my story. What's what, what what's what's occurred now, but I was very sensitive to how many friends and family don't they no idea what you're going through. And sometimes people just don't know what to say, which is absolutely fine, because how do you respond to somebody that's got something like that? And you, that you, you can't uh, hold them to account on that. But uh, 
I think you've just got to remain open and authentic. And when it came to talk, talking to people in a more professional capacity or in the work capacity, that, that was a lot more about, dare I say, it was less important. And I just decided, OK, my narrative is going to be this. I'll leave you with that. You can you can do with it what you will. But I'm going to spend more time with friends and family and people that were you know, really in on the inner circle. Uh, and those conversations have to be open and honest and full of tears and worries and, you know, uh, all the other type of sort of uh, hard hitting quick questions that, you know, children can sometimes ask you that your friends wouldn't. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, did you feel like you'd you'd sort of managed to get everything out in the open before having the surgery? Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think... Uh, I think because of the time, because of the way things worked and not having an emergency cardiac event, I, I think I'd, I'd done as, you never know, right? So there's never a, a perfect time for any of this. It's whatever they call it, most viable product. Sometimes you've just got to get to a point and say, right, we've got to go for it. And I think the important thing is, is that, uh, you know, you're, you're going to be on a long haul flight. And there is a degree that you've just got to make the best of it. And you've got to, you've just got to get going. Um, and you can't nail everything down. Perhaps I, w- I would have, any longer, I would have gone crazy trying to nail every variable down. Because mm, yeah. you, you, do, you don't know how you're going to react or, you, you know, um, to be brutally honest with you, the recovery process was, you know, it, it does hurt. Um, and there's bits and pieces that you learn all the way along. But we certainly had a window where you say, right, okay, this is my journey. This is the flight. The cabin doors have shut. I've got to put my trust in the pilot. I can't learn how to fly a plane any more than I have done already. I've got to relinquish controls to the to the professionals. Um, mm. So that that's what that sort of process and those chats afforded us. Mm-hmm. And how did people sort of friend friends and colleagues? How did they tend to react when you first told them? So you share you share some big news and some people it's interesting you don't know it's hard to second guess how people will respond some people immediately uh, phone you up they want to discuss something clumsily sometimes people will start telling you an immediately negative or bad story about somebody that they know that's got you know cancer but that's their way of saying or you know eliciting or that their emotional support is to try and say perhaps in a clumsy way but I know exactly where you are mm. so that was uh so that, that, that was that that was interesting so what what the question was more it was how people reacted children kind of hope I think that their parents have got it and I think we came across in a unified front and you know I cried in front of them at uh the you know the the dining table saying listen it's not, it's not that I'm sad it is because I'm sad it's because I'm worried and because it's you know I, I love you all and uh but I'm not going anywhere so I don't want you to worry but I think it, it's it's fine to be that way rather than you know looking like a, a ball of fury and not sharing with them because that's more that's more worrying for people uh, some friends yeah as I said immediately on the on the phone want to talk about it some friends you know, it was more text based or, you know, when, when I was when I was in hospital, uh, friends, I think one maybe one practical tip is that uh, friendship groups, sometimes people will want to take the lead and then sort of talk to your wife or your person nearest to you. Or you'll only have capacity to talk to one or two people. And then 
certain people wanted to step up and say, don't worry, I'll tell everybody else. They want to be that conduit through which, uh, you know, your information and your updates is shared. And then needless to say, some people, not that it's contagious, but I think, and I understand this, just didn't want to get too involved. And I and I wonder, you think, oh, right, is that, but it's not personal. Um, it might be that they feel that they can't offer an authentic response or it's not something you can necessarily send. I don't know if there's a, I'm sorry to hear you're going to have a heart operation emoji. Not yet, maybe. Maybe British Heart Foundation could do that. But, yeah, um, we'll get on it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, uh, yeah, so, so varying degrees, but not, um, I'm, you know, a big believer. I can't, I can't hold people accountable if they um, didn't necessarily step up because I think sometimes people don't know how to or people mm-hmm. stepped up more after the event and less before you know mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's an interesting one as you say because I think there isn't really a, a sort of standard response is there I think people maybe and like you said you didn't know a huge amount about it before you started doing your research so people probably didn't have a good idea of how serious this was and what it was going to entail for you. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely right. And why should they? As a charity, the British Heart Foundation depends on the generosity of donors to continue carrying out our life-saving research. Thank you to all of those who already give. It's truly appreciated. If you too would like to donate, you can do so by going to bhf.org.uk slash donate. And now back to the conversation. And you also had to make quite a big decision about um, the kind of valve replacement that you were going to have. Could you talk us through your approach to making that decision? Yeah, 100%. So um, when you have uh, the, 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 the background story is that a bicuspid valve should really be tricuspid, should have three parts, but not two. So it needs to be taken out and replaced because you know the process of pushing oxygenated blood around your body is not as efficient as it should be and it means that your heart works a lot harder and my heart become like any muscle larger because it was working harder to keep me going so the choices were and i didn't know this but you can have organic matter um or inorganic matter so what that so these are one of these conversations where you think you understand exactly what the cardiologist is telling you, but it took me two or three goes to try and process everything that was going on. Mm. Um, It's uh, currently, you might take an organic um, matter valve, a replacement valve, and that would might come from a pig. Um, And I think that the, 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 you know, the miracle of getting things to match up and organic matter not to be rejected is extraordinary and is all a matter of science which I don't understand but they do work but they will perish like any organic like we as human beings will perish over time so you can do that now the uh, again or you can choose a bit of kit um so I I chose a carbon valve now my decision making process and it won't be relevant for all the different situations or the people perhaps listening to this, but in in my situation at the age of uh, 51, I chose not to take an organic valve because there's a chance that that might start to degenerate and I might need a new one in 10 or 12 or 15 years time. 
Now, I'm hoping that, you know, in life 2.0, as I've now gone bionic with the carbon, I'm going to go for my usual, you know, for another 25, 30 years, perhaps, perhaps more. Uh, so I wanted to have the operation once. The downside of choosing a mechanical or carbon valve, as far as I could work out, was that um, you need to take something called warfarin or any type of blood thinner because there is a slightly higher chance of clotting around an inorganic um, heart valve and but it should go on for longer and I'm sure by in the next 10-20 years the science of heart repair uh, will have changed so dramatically that this whole debate probably won't even be relevant but Mm -hmm. if you are involved in something where you are prone to uh, getting cut so therefore if you bleed so if you think if you're a boxer or a rugby player or I don't know um then you probably or Arnold Schwarzenegger had to choose a organic matter heart valve because he's in stunts and action films. Uh, it's not what I it's not what I do. So I didn't have not. to. No, I didn't have that debate. Me and Arnie, we went different ways for different reasons. But um, so uh, yeah, so I, so I I chose the carbon valve. I mean, it's it's brilliant. One thing they didn't tell me is that, and it, this isn't this isn't a gripe by the way, but that on quiet evenings you can hear it ticking like a good Swiss watch. It's um, <laughs> it's a very humbling marker of time. Uh, but it's 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 brilliant. You know, you, you, it doesn't feel any different. You just take slightly different drugs for the rest of your life. But if that's uh, if that's the price to play taking a, a few blood thinners, then I'll, I'll take it. Mm. Um, and so the operation um, came around in February last year. It yeah. was obviously a success. Yeah. Um, you're still here. Um, could you talk through, um, you mentioned earlier about um, kind of the difficulty of the recovery process. Could you talk through that a little bit? In doing the work, and I must again say that the British Heart Foundation website was brilliant. The nurses that I bumped into, be it an ICU or, you know, um, the nurses, you know, in the recovery wards were just angels, brilliant. But there is a bias toward recovery being, you know, move your wrists, move your arms. It tend, it, it smacked a little bit more of not necessarily getting a more active person up and running. Mm-hmm. So I, I think what we had to work out is that uh, that's fine, but you know it, it's it, it's movement, it's creating positive habits, it's recognizing that uh, it definitely you'll be on some pretty hefty drugs to start off with, and it hurts, and it hurt to shuffle from the bed to the loo, but 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 make that shuffle, you know, do your absolute level best to sit up. Um, they had me sit up on day one after the operation just get out of bed, sit in a chair for an hour. It drained me of all of my energy, but it's just that um, being active, uh, baby steps, as I said. I then immersed myself in, you know, bits of kit that I bought, a breathing machine that you can puff into that sort of gets your your chest moving, makes it forces your sternum to move. I think probably makes your sternum knit together a bit stronger. Uh, definitely helps reflation of the lungs, which is something you've got to think about. Get up every hour, try and walk to the kitchen and then try and walk to the top of the street, try and walk around the block. And then walks became, OK, let's be out for five minutes. Let's be out for 10. Let's be out for half an hour. And, you know, the, the good thing is people should know after four weeks I sat on 
I've got one of those stationary spin bikes at home. I sat on that after four weeks and just turned the pedals. Didn't want to, but that was really good to do that just for two or three minutes. And then after six weeks, I was back in the gym. Mm. Nothing too strenuous, but and also recognizing you've got to be patient. Uh, there are days when you want to be quiet, uh, where you don't want to move, where you can just feel the aches and pains are a little bit too strong. And then on those days, I spent, uh, I kind of divided. I was talking there about more the physical recovery, but without wishing to sound like a new age guru, but I believe heavily in breath work. You know, it's a brilliant book by James Nestor called Breathe in meditation, you know, just time spent processing what might be a little bit of anger or remorse or anxiety that's sitting inside your body. So thinking about that, processing it, you know, you call it meditation or just call it you time, but, you know, sitting through it the mental recovery of talking it through, being honest with people, being honest with people that want to listen. Uh, listening to my surgeon uh, was enormously comforting. Listening to friends or just, you know, being around people is absolutely critical. Sleep's absolutely critical. Not trying to be a hero, but just like baby steps, baby steps and creating positive habits, which perhaps you can, you know, tick it off, tick it off on a chart. It sounds a bit trite, but it's quite, it works. Hmm. You you mentioned quite a lot of emotions there. So thinking about like anxiety and remorse in the body or like feeling a bit angry. How did hmm. you actually feel during the recovery process? I felt scared at times. I thought it was an operation of, of such enormity, even though it's becoming more of a standard operation. And you just kind of think I might be broken. I, d I, I definitely had... Um, I didn't mention wearable technology, but I've got one of these watches which will analyze your heartbeat. And I 100% got into a panic attack because mm. things hurt. And, and you know, if, if, I get, if I get a hangnail now or a toothache, I've, I'm, you know, a bit of a wuss. It hurts, it hurts, and I feel a bit sorry for myself. So when you've got something big and structural that's happened on, on your body, uh, it, it, it's, it's very hard to... To process that and you you feel i felt very fragile i felt frail i used to feel pretty invincible i'm a you know big tall guy um very healthy um you feel a bit am i broken um will i ever get back to being robust and strong and looking well I, you know um not from a not from a negative or vain point of view but you look you look drawn and I think you feel sorry for yourself and, and destabilized. And, you know, as soon as your body is not working as you're used to, as you take it for granted, it's 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 a big uh, event to process. Mm. And if you try and deny it, like anything in life, if you try and ignore something that needs processing and then it just sits more heavily inside you. Mm. And a year on um, in the recovery process, are you feeling back to kind of feeling like you're fully functioning again yeah 100 percent. so um I, I i want this to be uh i was thinking about how to share with you molly and sort of how much i should share but i the, i've tried to think about the snippets that people gave me along the process that um i found really helpful and stuff to stuff that really helped me but 100 percent uh, you know, you, you get through it and you're going to survive. And, you know, through not being rigid and brittle, but being a bit more flexible and adaptive to the process, you're not hiding from it 
you'll definitely get through. And, you know, right now, this morning, before this, I got up at seven. Fortunately, I, I had a, a game of tennis for an hour with somebody. I worry less about my body. I'm still very mindful of being well. Um, sometimes I, I did have a period of atrial fibrillation, which is when your heart will tend to beat in an irregular fashion. Th- that's being managed now. And now I feel good. I feel good. And I feel a real sense of gratitude mm. that it. Uh, this was an inflection point in my life of, um, you know, uh, making some choices which um, reflect the kind of like the journey I've been on. Mm. Because um, you stopped working on the trading floors when this all happened. So does this feel very much like a kind of before and after? Yeah, I think um, I I think that's kind of how it's playing out. It's not necessarily how that wasn't necessarily the plan, but it's uh, definitely without sort of how I've had that sort of moment of seeing religion. But I think we if we can or are lucky enough to have the benefit of stopping you know just pausing for breath and saying okay how hard are we running um and why without all getting too philosophical then i think that's really really helpful and my time now you know how brilliant that i have the time to be able to prepare for this to think about this chat we were going to have and hopefully you know help you guys more and I you know if we do end up sort of writing an article so people can read some of these thoughts as well then that is something I'd be proud of and something that I'd want to try and help other people with rather than sort of being maybe a little bit more more introspective and just sort of charging after the you know the daily grind. Mm. How does it feel looking back now at your previous life which was so high pressure and high stress? It was a great job, don't get me wrong. I mean, amazing people, uh, really invigorating to be that close on the sort of front edge of global markets and, you know, the noise and the energy was was great and it's still very much in the DNA. Um, So maybe it's not completely gone away. But uh, also the trading environment, uh, there is a degree that um, it's a bit, bit of a young man's sport and that's not me being sort of, I've given in, but I think we have to get older and wiser and try and adapt and think about how better to uh, deploy our skills. I mean, me getting up at five in the morning to sit down at a trading desk at six, you know, that that in itself takes a toll. Mm. And I was, you know, indirectly stumbling towards having a cardiac event on a probably on a trading floor or on a plane or on a tennis court, which I have friends and my colleagues have had friends and I've lost colleagues who I see, I've seen that happen too. And I, that is, you know, without, there is no price uh, that's worth that. Mm-hmm. And do you know what the future might hold now? Well, I think um, podcast career, TV, <laughs> films, I don't know. I mean, I've got, uh, you know, I'm still involved in a, in a few projects, which sort of slightly related to my old world, um, but I want to get involved in, you know, I, I don't know, Molly, I don't know if this working with an institution like the British Health Half Foundation, maybe that is something which can there be any greater way to expend a bit more energy in trying to help other people. And, you know, the, the, the link between research, uh, science, pharmaceutical, you know, and, and the finance industry is a close one. Um, and the UK is always done really well 
at having great pharmaceutical companies. So we, um, you know, maybe that's going to be where this path goes. But I'm, you know, I just recognise you can't hold on to things too tightly and you don't necessarily know which way the journey is going to unfold, Mm. you know, because something like this hits you or somebody says, I've never been a great believer in it's good to have a five-year plan, maybe. Be, you know, nowadays you're lucky if you can have a two-year plan. Or COVID told us you're lucky if you could have a two-day plan. So, or, or it's also shown us that some people have no plan. So, you know, we, we shall see. We shall see. Mm. But um, mm. yeah, still very much want to sort of stay in the game. And looking back, what what do you think are the are the main things that got you through this whole process? Family, uh, an amazing. Uh, cardiac surgeon who just allayed so many fears information from professionals such as the British Heart Foundation not panicking but um, being trying to be stoic and trying to be adult and pragmatic uh, creating a framework or a process yeah and, and, and I, th- I think most importantly just um, you've just got to give into it you, you're going to have days like we all do I think you'll have days when it just really you just think, come on, or it sounds ridiculous, but you know, this isn't for me. I'm invincible. This isn't on my radar. This isn't what I do. This isn't, you know, what was meant to be, but it is. And you've got to recognize that and analyze it. You know, that's, um, that's been, you know, th- those elements of that uh, and being able to adapt. I mean, every time I can tell you, every time the phone would go or, you'd have to go for an MRI scan or a an x-ray it it, it would it, it drains your energy you've got to you've got to recognize and be kind to yourself every time I went for an x-ray I thought right well if it's not the heart they'll find something else now on the x-ray you know you you, you really it's draining or you know can we take a blood sample oh no we've got to take eight or can you go and have another consultation with somebody in another part of the building and you kind of want to hide mm. But, um, you know, having a process and, and family and friends and yourself backing you is the only way to get through it. Because mm. I think I think you've come out the other side and I'm hoping I'm not sort of labouring the intensity of the process too much. You, you know, how you go into it and how you come out the other side, it kind of sets your stall out for how you're going to spend the rest of your days, doesn't it? So you've, you've got to get it right. What What do you mean by that? Uh, if you go into it like a a ball of anger and unaware of making the right choices or not sharing with people, not using the amazing people that are around you in that process, be it, you know, professional or family or friends, and then coming out of the other side and trying to process all of the anger and fear without sharing it, you're, you'll turn yourself inside out. You'll make yourself poorly. Mm. Again, so you've got to, well, my approach has been to try and face up to it, you know, and try and show equanimity, try and bend and flex and, you know, spring back rather than be brittle. Hmm. What advice might you give to somebody else who is in a similar situation to the one that you were in? Um, So my advice would be uh, to... I think listen to your your cardiologist to learn as much as you feel comfortable in learning. I found a great comfort in being able to ask questions 
knowing that at some stage though you've got to as i said you know it's like settling in for a long-haul flight you either say geez i'm on a plane for 12 hours this is awful or you say okay i'm gonna have to make the very best of this so what can i do so again i think the advice would be to be honest to process your emotions mindfully again to be stoic don't hide from it um, breaking the situation down into smaller steps. It's a bit like I think you guys are going to sponsor the London Marathon. You know, a lot of people say you can do that by by breaking it down into, you know, five mile sections. You don't eat an elephant in one sitting. You're probably not allowed to eat an elephant anyway, but you, you've got to just try and make it uh, manageable. Mm. Use your Use your support network and work out who you want to use. I didn't want to overshare with people because I didn't want to create a a narrative of oh Jason's broken or Jason's unwell because I don't want people you know that was the vanity of the situation or the the pride but you don't want people to look or to treat you in that way but you've you've got to open to some people you've got to you know you've got to try and own it you've got to be brave be kind to yourself use guile and know that you're going to get through the other side I mean, there are amazing people that work in the British Heart Foundation, in hospitals, research people, the surgeons, the care nurses, the ICU, right at a a stage when you're probably at your most unlovable, uh, most panicky, and they just have seen it many times over and and they'll have your back. That's great, Jason. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. My pleasure. It's lovely to chat to you. I hope it's um, hope it's helpful. For more information about conditions like Jason's, visit the BHF website at bhf.org.uk. Remember, if you've got any questions about your heart or circulatory health, you can contact the BHF Heart Helpline. The details are also on our website. If you want to get in touch with us, we're on the ticker tapes at bhf.org.uk. Thank you for listening and join us next time on The Ticker Tapes.